0: Yo, yo, all right, go ahead and take a seat, go ahead and take a seat, we're going to get rolling here, we are going to get rolling here, wow, what a joy and what a privilege it is to be with you guys here tonight. So awesome to see you guys. My name's Adam. I'm one of the residents here at Mountain View College Ministry. I'm a church planting resident. They're going to send us out to plant a church in 2023, which I'm excited about. Um, we've been going through the book of 1 Thessalonians. We've okay? been preaching through it as much as we can, verse by verse, trying not to skip anything. I think every single verse has been read, just because the Bible really blesses us when we march through it sequentially, not allowed to avoid anything, and, and you get the whole counsel of God. It's just a unique blessing that the Bible gives when you kind of march through it like that. And tonight is the second-to-last installment in the Thessalonian series, okay? It's the second-to-last one. We close it out next week, and let me just start by giving you guys some facts. 75% of Americans believe in an afterlife. Okay? With y'all's current generation, call it 18 to 29, about 60% believe in it. Now, that number has ebbed and flowed throughout the years, throughout the centuries. I mean, shoot, even in Jesus' time, there was this rich, political, religious party known as the Sadducees that didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe souls were eternal. And depending on the century, the era, the culture, that belief in the afterlife comes and goes, okay? And I just want to submit to you guys that what we believe about the next life or lack thereof Is incredibly consequential to our lives. It drastically shifts and changes and guides and directs the choices that we make and who we are. For example, old Greek philosopher known as Epicurus, maybe you've seen his name pasted on food companies like Epicurean Catering and Epicurean Dining. The reason is, is because this guy didn't believe in an afterlife, and so he thought the meaning of life was wrapped up in the pursuit of pleasures. Because after all, If there's nothing next, uh, the the saying is attributed to him, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. So live it up. YOLO. That's Epicurus's, I don't know what century he was, probably. He he didn't have a t-shirt, but, you know, he was a YOLO guy, okay? Epicurus, eat, drink, and be merry. In fact, Paul agrees. Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians 15, 32. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Kind of matters what you think about the next life. Kind of matters. It empowers you to make really challenging decisions. It leads you maybe the opposite direction, to live only for yourself. And for Christians, this is incredibly consequential, too. Consider this quote from the book Evangelism as as Exiles. This is what he says. There, during the reign of Soviet communism, multitudes of Romanians, including many Christians, were tortured as criminals of the state. I toured cells where men were chained to the floor and forced to stand naked and upright day and night on bare, cold stone with their feet submerged in icy water. One such political prisoner was Richard Wurmbrandt, a Jewish Christian minister. He was ultimately released and later went on to found The Voice of the Martyrs, which is a magazine. But one of his memories from that time in jail is fitting here. This is what his memory says. This is, his, I think, his memoir. It was strictly forbidden to preach to the other prisoners. It was understood that whoever was caught doing this received a severe beating. A number of us decided to pay the price for the privilege of preaching. So we accepted their terms. It was a deal. We preached, and they beat us. We were happy preaching. They were happy beating us. And everyone was happy. That's a cold-blooded man right there, dude. If I get to be half that guy when I grow up. Look at what it caused this guy to do. They beat us, we got to preach, and everyone was happy. What's got to be in someone to make a decision like that? What kind of joy, what kind of hope? This is how he closes it out. Such joy and suffering, such happiness and hope. And how that hope fueled his gospel proclamation it's that kind of hope that's incomprehensible to the communist jailers. That inexplicable, marvelous hope. Deeply affected who he was and how he acted, even in the pit of prison. Even in the pit of prison. So, this brings us to an important question. How should we live in the light of the next life? How should we live in light of the next life? Or, if you're exploring and you're not a Christian, why should I even believe that there's a next life? What evidence do you present? How should I live in light of the next life? Or, why should I even believe it? Two very consequential, important questions that you got to answer in life, right? And I think that Paul's going to do that. Today in uh, the next step here in First Thessalonians. So if you open with me in your Bibles, we're going to read First Thessalonians four, the end of the chapter thir- uh, thirteen through the end of four, and then the beginning of five. It's going to be up on the screen here. Okay, this is what it says. I'm going to read the whole thing. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as those who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying, there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of the light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober." having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. 1 Thessalonians end of 4 through the beginning of chapter 5. Okay? Now, I think this is kind of two sections. If you're looking at it in your Bible, the whole section leading up to the end of chapter four is kind of one discrete section, but then it's a similar topic, although a little different, at the first 11 verses of chapter five, okay? In the first section, I think we can just summarize as being hopeful for Jesus's return, okay? Look at what he says first. Paul addresses their concern right away, because remember, this is a letter, they've probably, they've said things to him, whether it was in a written letter or they sent a messenger, they've asked him things. And Paul, responding to that, says this, but we do not want you to be uninformed about those who are asleep. Now, asleep in the New Testament, a lot of times, is a euphemism for dead, okay? He's talking about Christians who have died. This is what he's talking about right now. And apparently, the Thessalonians were tripping about it. Apparently, they Had friends and family members who were following Christ who had died, and they weren't sure how they fit into what's next. They didn't want those family members to miss out on the coming kingdom. Okay? And what we're talking about here, what we just read, is what's sometimes called the second coming. What's the second coming? It's when Jesus comes back physically the second time. He's already been here once, first century. When he was about 30, the Bible said, he started his ministry, came, did what he came to do, died, said he was going to die a year ahead of time, and then rose from the dead, the narrative claims. And then he says he's going to come back, and that's what Paul's talking about here, the second coming. Um, And so he's answering a question, and then what he says to them is this, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. Why? Because Christians have hope. And you don't need to grieve like you don't. Because Jesus has given it to you. Jesus gives us hope. Why do we have hope? Why? Look at what he says in verse 14. This is the centerpiece of his reasoning here. Look at what he says. Jesus died and rose again. Through Jesus, he will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. The centerpiece of the resurrection is Jesus. Okay? Okay. Because of Jesus, through Jesus, he's the one that died and rose again first. And then because he did that through him, those who have fallen asleep, he will bring with him. His point is that for Christians, all the chips, man, were all in on Jesus's resurrection. We just talked about this this last Easter Sunday. Every year, it's like the Super Bowl of Christianity, man. We celebrate the resurrection of Jesus because it is the centerpiece. It's the thing that proved that he was who he said he was. He was God. He came and did what he accomplished to do. He resurrected. He has authority over sin, power, and he proved it in the resurrection. This is why the resurrection is so central. Aaron even talked about this last Sunday. He gave some of the proofs as to why the resurrection is so important, some of the the proofs that the resurrection is reasonable and believable, not just believable, but extremely probable. Now, if you're not a Christian and you're examining this, you're exploring this, I think this is where Paul is steering you. If you ask the question, why should I even believe in the resurrection? What I think Paul is doing here is he's saying, you're not sure about the resurrection? Look and investigate Jesus. Not sure about what's going to happen when you die? Examine the claims of Jesus. Look, there's been, whole, there's been hundreds upon hundreds of books written on this one topic. Why? Because if it's not true, as Paul said, if the resurrection isn't true, we Christians are above all people to be most pitied. Talk about a wasted life. They camped and took the resurrection to the bank and it didn't come through. And Paul's like, yeah, the resurrection isn't true. We're to be most pitied. But it is. At least this is what Christians claim. And this is why whole books have been written in defense about this. There's a guy, I mean, he's honestly, a lot of people consider him the most respected religious scholar alive, okay? On the liberal side, on the middle side, on the conservative side, his name's N.T. Wright, okay? He wrote an entire book about the resurrection, and when I say entire book, I mean 850 pages of nonfiction about the resurrection. Raise your hand if you've read an 850-page nonfiction book before. We got, we got three. The readers. It's a bear. There's a guy named Gary Habermas who's devoted his whole career to this singular topic because he knows. He knows that if it's true, and if people come to see that it's not just true, but likely plausible reality, well, that changes everything. If he said he was going to do it and then he did it, that changes everything. So if you're not a Christian, you're here exploring, I want to encourage you what I think Paul encourages you here to do, which is look to Jesus. See, examine the scriptures, examine the arguments for, and examine the arguments against, and see if he raised from the dead. Because something happened 2,000 years ago. Something happened 2,000 years ago such that there's now north of a billion Christians spread across the world who regularly give their lives. I mean, we just read something from one of the guys who started Voice of the Martyrs who was in a Soviet prison. There's a reason that people are willing to do that, to suffer like that, to preach the gospel. I would encourage you to look at that. Um, So then verses 13 through 14 here, he's just kind of addressing the topic. And he's talking about those who've fallen asleep. You don't have to have no hope. Then he starts talking about the, the details of the resurrection, the details of the second coming. Look at what he says here in verse 15. Okay, So by a word of the Lord, so what Paul is saying is the Lord, he's talking about Jesus. This is from the word of the Lord that what we're about to say, Okay, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. What's his point? Is that the first thing that happens when Jesus comes back, the second coming, is that those who are dead, are resurrected. And then those who are alive follow. And then look at what he says in verse 16. The Lord him this is when this is when the second coming happens. Look at what it says. The Lord himself will descend. The Lord himself will descend. Physical form just like he was. He's here with us now in the way that he sent his Holy Spirit. He's here with us now in the way the Spirit of Jesus, also known as the Holy Spirit, fills us who are Christians, speaks to us. He shows up in dreams. He's here with us in spirit. He said, I'm with you always to the very end of the age. And in the second coming, he comes back physically for the second time. He himself. And then with the sound of the trumpet of God, there's a trumpet that blares when this happens. And both in history and in the Bible, the sound of a trumpet is indicative of an announcement and it's also indicative oftentimes of judgment because what happens when the Son of Man, the Lord Jesus Christ, according to the Bible, comes back it is the ju- it's judgment day. That's when Jesus judges the world. Okay? And for those who are in Jesus, he takes them away to eternal life with him and for those who are not in Jesus, he sends them away to eternal life without him, what's classically called heaven and hell. The horn is an announcement. It's a, it's a signal of judgment, okay? And it, it means that time is up. That's what it means. It means the time this era is done, and the next one will begin. And then this is a, kind of an important verse in this topic. Look what he says. We who are alive who are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Now, for those of you who are familiar with this topic, this is what has historically been called, at least in our time, the rapture. This is the only explicit verse about the quote-unquote rapture in the Bible. And the word comes from the Latin translation of the Greek of what's happening here. And it's this moment where Christians, who are alive, meet Jesus in the air. This is what that is. They're caught up in the clouds with him. And, and this passage doesn't talk about this directly, but it's kind of important to this topic, so I'm just going to say it here. This is the second coming, but people... Christians, other people, we're going to die before that happens. Like, there's people dying today, right now, who are Christians. And they don't go straight to the resurrection. They go to what's called paradise. We know this from the moment when Jesus is on the cross. He's being crucified, and there's a thief next to him who basically repents and says, Jesus, remember me. I mean, you did nothing wrong. He defends Jesus in front of the other uh, prisoners, and he's like, remember me in your kingdom. You know what Jesus says to him? Today you will be with me in paradise. This is before the resurrection, obviously, because it hasn't happened yet. This is before the resurrection. So paradise, or what sometimes the theologians have just called the intermediate state, is where when Christians die, they go to be with Jesus. They just haven't had their physical bodies resurrected yet. Okay, So when we die as Christians, we go to be with Jesus because you're eternal beings. Okay, The Bible doesn't teach soul sleep. Okay, It definitely doesn't teach purgatory which is a a Catholic doctrine developed in later centuries, which basically implies and says that if you die, when you die, you still have stuff that maybe you need to work off between uh, after death and between heaven, and so you're going to have to work it off in this place called purgatory? Not at all what the Bible teaches, because that would imply that Jesus' death wasn't enough, that it didn't cleanse you from all your sins, which the Bible says over and over again that he did. Purgatory... Later century development, not something that the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches paradise, the intermediate state, but then the second coming and the resurrection, the physical resurrection, okay? And this is what he's talking about here, The verse 17, getting caught up in the air, all right? And then I, I think this is one of the most important parts of this, that, it, like, honestly, if there's, a, if there's a handful of things you could walk away with tonight, I want you to remember this, Okay? This is the implication of the moment when Jesus comes back. And so we will always be with the Lord. When he comes back, from that point on, we will always be with the Lord. If you're a Christian, I mean, the news doesn't get any better. If you're a Christian, the one who has been who pursued you, who saved you, who forgave you, who wiped your shame and your sins away, who stuck with you even when you didn't stick with him, When you you failed him, he still covered your sins. God is love. Jesus is love. That one. The king of kings, the Lord of glory. You get to be with him forever. Okay? This, at its core, is heaven. This is what heaven is. Okay? Now, look. There's been throughout the throughout the years culture has thrown all this weird stuff. This is what heaven is. It's people in harps floating around playing things. It's weird red creatures with pitchforks running around. That's what hell like there's all this weird stuff that culture throws into heaven and hell, right? You need to go back to the Bible to see what it actually says because the enemy of God would like nothing better than to pretend that hell isn't as bad as it really is and also to pretend that heaven isn't as good as it really is. And central to heaven and hell, for that matter, is the presence of Jesus. Literally, the very next Thessalonians book, 2 Thessalonians, in the first chapter, it says that hell is apart from the Lord. I'm talking about Jesus. Hell is apart from the Lord. Here, in, the, in 1 Thessalonians, he's saying, and so we will always be with the Lord. Okay? So this—so maybe you're saying to yourself right now, okay, still not convinced of the afterlife, but— It's possible. I can't say for sure, but what if I don't want Jesus in the afterlife? What if I just want it to be like heaven the way I've normally seen it in my mind? All the bad stuff gone and all the good stuff there. And obviously the Bible talks about how heaven will be perfection in recreated physical bodies with pain and tears and sin no more a recreated heavens and beautiful earth before we broke it with our rebellion against God, all that is true. Every amazing, wonderful, beautiful thing you've ever tasted, seen, and smelled, every amazing experience you've ever had will be times a thousand in heaven. Yes, that's true. But you know what else is true? There's not going to be anyone in heaven who doesn't want to be with Jesus because that's what heaven is. That's what it is. It's eternity with Jesus. And you know what? That happens to be awesome because he created everything that's awesome. Every good and wonderful thing you've ever seen, tasted, smelled, heard came from him. And the brokenness of life came from our rebellion as people. At the core of heaven is being with Jesus forever. And there's not gonna be anyone there who doesn't wanna be with him because that's what heaven is. It's eternity with Jesus. Look, and maybe you're like, yeah, but I'm just not convinced of that yet. I mean, think about it this way. Think about back to the days of being a kid on Christmas, okay? And I just want you, I don't know what kind of parents y'all had, but I just wanna, I want you to picture good parents. I want you to picture that you had two good, faithful, amazing parents. And on Christmas, where we give presents, they thought about you, and they gave you something awesome. Maybe it was an Xbox. Maybe it was that tricycle. Dude, I'm 33. last Christmas. my mom gave me the most expensive pair of headphones. I was like, "We're still doing this. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. I was like, I, I don't know where I am. I'm, I'm 33. I'm a grown man living in Colorado. You're... I'll take it though, <laughs> you know? Um, I want you to imagine that, OK? And I want you to ask yourself the question. Would you ever want the gift in that situation more than the giver? Like imagine, maybe your parents were incredibly faithful and good and not perfect, but that you know that they loved you. Would you ever want some gift on Christmas more than them? Ever. Is not the giver greater than the gifts? And this is core to the logic of wanting heaven without Jesus. The giver is greater than the gifts. He's the one that came up with them all. Because there's only light in him. There's only goodness and righteousness in him. It doesn't make sense to want the gifts without the giver. Because the giver is better. The giver is better. Okay? And this is where he brings it home. The last part of chapter 4 here. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. This is his point of this first section. In light of all these details that I just gave you about the second coming, therefore, encourage one another because you have hope and look sometimes when people read these these texts because it's like the only rapture text that's like kind of really clear and you know we're, we're always trying as people to kind of as we're about to see predict when he's going to come back but i just want to point out to you here i just want to point out to you here that he's as one commentator put it he's not trying to predict he's trying to pastor them what did it start with concerning those who have fallen asleep there's people grieving people have lost people People have faced the sting of death on this life. And Paul's like, you can have hope. And here's why. Because Jesus is coming back. That's literally the point of this text, okay? Literally the main reason that he writes it. Because you're going to see your brothers and sisters, your Christian brothers and sisters, again. We lost a friend recently. I've talked about her actually a couple times, I think, in the last year from sermons. She was mid-30s, and Joni and I just loved her oh, so deeply. She came to faith a c- couple Augusts ago. And then she died last August. And then I had to handle her estate, which I've never done before. And it's just brutal because you're going through all of their stuff. And, you know, she was on welfare. She didn't have anything, but she did have an old Honda Element. And it was parked outside my house for like months. And every time I saw it, I wanted her back. My wife and I, when we go on our morning walks on Fridays, we talk about her. In fact, at one point, I was honestly hoping to bring her up on stage so she could share about the story of her life, but never got that chance because she had an amazing story. And one day, I'm going to see her again. You guys will if you're in Jesus. Get to see her again. Our heart aches in moments of loss. Even just pain. You're going through life that's hard. You can look to something in the future. This is why Paul says, therefore, encourage one another. In the moment when you need it, remember the resurrection. Remember the second coming. Remember that Jesus is coming back. And you might say, well, what if I don't know about if this person was with like knew Jesus or not. What if I don't know about that? What if it maybe it even seems like the opposite? Here's what I could say to you about that. He's the judge, and you're not. That's on his shoulders and not yours. He's sitting on the throne, and he's the perfect judge, and nobody can be trusted more. There's only light in him, and he will do what's right. It's not on your shoulders to judge the world. It's on his. Okay? And you can trust him. This is what Jesus testifies to. This is what God's word testifies to. This passage is not here to predict, to help us to predict when he's coming back. It's here to pastor. It's here to shepherd. It's here to care. And I just want you guys to see that. Okay? So if you've experienced loss, if you're in pain, we can encourage one another with the resurrection. We can encourage one another that one day it'll be different, because it will. One day it will be different, and it's coming fast. And that's what this next section's about, chapter 5. If the first section is about being hopeful for Jesus' return, this next section is about being ready for Jesus' return, okay? Look at what he says in verse 1. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, This is actually the first guy to say this was Jesus. It's the beginning of the book of Acts. One of the disciples asks him, Lord, will you at this time now return and bring the kingdom back to Israel? In other words, are you about to come back now, Lord? Is it all over now? And then Jesus responds to him, now concerning the times and the seasons, that is not for you to know. That's literally what he responds with. Some guy, hey, I want to know when you're going to come back. Jesus, not for you to know. Which is why it's mind-blowing why every day... On the internet, there's some guy who's like, This is when it's happening. The only thing I know about that is that that's when it's not happening, because if it was, then we'd know. And we don't know, so it's not that day. So if you don't want it to happen tomorrow, just be like, I think it's gonna happen tomorrow. Done, it's not happening, guys. Okay? Now, concerning the times and the seasons, he's talking about when Jesus comes back. And Jesus says in Acts, You don't get to know, that's not for you to know. But then he says this is what it's like. It comes like a thief in the night. This is what the second coming is going to be like. It comes like a thief in the night. Jesus, again, was the first one to use this verbiage, this language. It'll come like a thief. And then a lot of the other New Testament authors use it as well. And here's what I think that means. It's coming in a way you don't expect. When Jesus comes back, it's coming at a time, in a way that we do not expect. This is what it's going to be like. People are going to be saying there is peace and security and then sudden destruction when people are saying there is peace and security. Okay, It's going to come on them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman. I have seen this happen a few times. (laughs) I have seen labor pains come on a pregnant woman a couple times. Okay, The first time, um, I'll call it the second time. The second time, um, I woke up at 4 a.m. I looked over. Johnny was sitting up. She looks at me and I was like, What? And She was like, I went into labor at one. I was like, Oh, really? And she was like, Yeah. And I was like, Oh, I'm getting up. I'm like walking around. I'm like, okay. It's 4 a.m. I go to the kitchen. I'm making French toast because my guy's coming, dude. I'm not going back to bed. Are you kidding me? I'm walking around. I'm, I'm thinking, okay, what's, what's going to happen? And, we, and, and Noah, that was Noah, we had him at a, a birth center and the midwives are like, okay, labor at home until contractions are X long and Y distance apart from each other. Okay, we've got a little phone tracker on our phone. Okay, contractions are X long. And it's, just, it's progressing slow. You know, 8 a.m. rolls around and it's not even close, so we're like, let's go to Starbucks. <laughs> so we go to Starbucks. Joni's laboring. We go to Starbucks in line. Walk up to the barista. I'm like, yo, I'll have a iced latte oat milk. And then Joni walks up and she's like, I'll have a latte. <laughs> I'm just kidding. She had the contraction right before. But man, that that grunt would have snuck up on that barista like a thief in the night, bro. It woulda. Okay? And look, I, for that moment, for me, for that moment, for, for me, it was joyful. It was joyful because my son was coming into the world. Okay? And it was great. And so, too, for Christians, when Jesus comes back, it's going to be great. But here's the part where it changes. Here's the part where it changes. The sudden destruction part is the part that comes from those who are outside of Jesus. Okay? And it's coming fast. And it's coming at a time that we do not expect. And so again, if you're considering faith, if you're exploring Christianity, I want to point out to you here that you don't have infinite time. You don't have all the time in the universe. I mean, you're not promised tomorrow. Honestly And look, I don't say that to scare you into it. I don't say that to manipulate you into it. I say that one, because it's here. But I think a, a famous atheist actually said it once really well. This is how he said it. His name's uh, Penn and Teller, for those of you who they're like a Vegas magician act. Penn's like a pretty, pretty famous atheist. And at one point he tells the story about this guy who brings him a Bible. After a show, he's like, dude, I love your shows. Here's a Bible. I love the Lord. I hope you love the Lord too. (laughs) Something like that. And Penn was like, and I actually really respected that guy for doing it. You want to know why? Because if this guy, who I think is a moron, actually believes that heaven and hell is real and that heaven is eternal bliss with Jesus forevermore and that hell is condemnation away from Jesus and everything possibly good forevermore, if he actually believes that, bro, how much you got to hate someone not to tell them? How much you got to hate someone not to let them know that you think that and that you think this is coming, that it can come like a thief in the night when you don't expect? That's what Penn said, the atheist. My thoughts exactly. Paul's thoughts exactly. And this is why I want to remind you that if you're considering faith, I am honestly so glad that you're here. According to the Bible, you don't have forever. And we don't know when it's going to come. And I just want you to keep that in mind. I want you to keep that in mind, okay? Um, And so, while it comes like a thief in the night, look at what he says about Christians, though. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For Christians, you don't have to be surprised in as much as we know that it's coming, and we know it could come tomorrow. I mean, look, Paul even earlier is like, then we who are alive will get caught up in the clouds. That dude thinks it's coming while well, he's alive, at least at that moment. Then if you look, and I think it's in Second Corinthians, he's like, after I die and I'm resurrected, and it's like, oh, what changed? <laughs> you know, like, I, I, I guess he, was, he wasn't sure, and other times he changed his mind, but the point is, is that Christians are always living in this imminence, that it might come at any minute. And you don't have to be surprised when it does. And not surprised, if we're not gonna be that, then what should we be? Awake. Look at what he says in verse 6. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. This is being ready for Jesus's return. I think this is the whole point of this, these verses here in chapter five. Being ready, being awake, being not asleep. And he's not talking about sleep and death the way he's talking about it earlier. Here he's talking about just like a, like a moral lethargy. Like, like you don't care. Like who, you know, eat, drink today and be merry for tomorrow we die kind of attitude. Like It doesn't matter what you do or why, because who cares? He's saying, no, not that. Um, Keep awake and be sober. Um, And so, you know, you don't need to be surprised. Keep awake and be sober. Be ready. This is Paul's point here. Okay, he's talking about a moral sense. This is why in Luke chapter 12, Jesus will say, Jesus will say, blessed is the servant who, when his master comes back, he finds him working. That's why Jesus says that. Um, and so, like, for us as Christians, we need to be ready. And what does ready look like? It means laboring in the harvest. It means using your gifts to serve God's people. It means caring for the poor and oppressed and the hurting. All the things that the Bible calls us to do as Christians now, so many others, before he comes back. That's what being ready is. Such to the point where if he comes back, there's this moment where you're like, oh, but I was doing things that were important. But you're also like, and I'm glad that it's over. You know, you're living in that tension. This is what it means to be awake, to be ready, okay? So, are you using your gifts now? What is your, what, what way are you living now? Are you wasting it? Or are you living it for the kingdom? If he came back now, how would you feel? I mean, if you're a Christian, obviously you're going to feel great, but how would you feel about you in the way you invested your time? How would you feel about it? This is one of the things that I think Paul has drawn out of us here, Okay? Are you providing for yourself? Are you are you generous? Or all these things that the Bible calls us to do, or are you hiding out in a bunker, eating freeze dried food with your Xbox, waiting for the second coming? Like that's obviously the opposite of what Paul has in mind here. Some of you are all like, that sounds like my life now, and I'm not waiting for the second. <laughs> this is obviously not what Paul has in mind. Okay, readiness is what he has in mind. Okay, which is why he says this in verse eight as we come to the end here. Put on the breastplate of faith and love and the helmet of the hope of salvation. Breastplate of faith and love and the helmet of the hope and salvation. This is somebody who's ready. This is the image of somebody who is ready to do the work of the kingdom. Not somebody who's sitting on their hands. And this is the image that Paul gives us to, like, to, to describe readiness to us. Okay, They're not wasting their life. And which is why, I mean, I just love the way that he ends this chapter. Look at what he says here. I'm just going to read all of it here, 9 and 10. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. This is the gospel. If you're in Jesus, he's destined you for salvation. What's salvation? It's like it's deliverance from harm. It's the ultimate fulfillment and satisfaction of who you are as a person. It's it's your purpose accomplished. It's the removal of all pain and evil. All of that is gone. He has destined you through Jesus for that, if you've put your faith in him. Not for wrath. And the wrath of God rightly sits on sin that he has not forgiven. Because he's good. And he's not going to ignore evil. Because he's good. In the gospel, in the gospel, both love and justice find their home. Can you see that? Because in the gospel, sin gets paid for. It doesn't get ignored. And in the gospel, you got pursued in your sin because he loves you. Both love and justice are found in the gospel. This is why it's the greatest story ever told. This is why it's the greatest story ever told. And it's a result of his work, his grace, his forgiveness, not on y'all's works, not on my works. It's a result of his act. This is the good news. This is the good news. And so for the last time tonight, if you're not sure about the resurrection, if you're not sure about the afterlife, you're thinking about it, you're not sure, I just want to invite you one more time. I want to invite you to trust him tonight. If you're not sure about tomorrow, If you don't want to just be tempted to live for yourself the rest of your life, and granted, there's people who don't believe in the afterlife that do try to live righteously, but if you don't want to be tempted by that, with that epicurious philosophy we talked about, I want to invite you to devote yourself to Jesus, okay? If you don't want one more night unsure about your purpose, then I want to talk to you after. If you don't want one more night of that, then I want to talk to you after, okay? For the rest of us, remember that original question, how should we live in light of the next life? We should live with hope and love and faith, prepared for the king to return, making disciples, preaching the gospel, working jobs with dignity, reflecting him, working in school with dignity and honor, reflecting him. Raising families that love and call on his name, that worship him. Serving the church, using your gifts, all these wonderful things that it means to be ready. Okay? That's our calling. How should we live in light of the resurrection? Okay, let's pray. Lord, Such a just direct and important text, God, about how you will come back. Lord Jesus, I thank you for the seekers here with us tonight, for those considering. I pray that you stir their hearts. pray that they get to see who you really are. Lord Jesus, I thank you for all those who call on your name here tonight. I pray that you stir them to action, that you stir them to readiness, and to eagerly await your return. Lord Jesus, thank you for the resurrection. In the resurrection, death bowed to you. Thank you for that. Thank you for being God and coming to earth to save sinners. Thank you for coming to earth to rescue us, and thank you for one day coming back. We look forward to that day, Lord Jesus. Until then, let us honor you and reflect who you are. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.